Hey, listeners, thanks for downloading our podcast again. This is Filmed in Canada, a podcast that talks about Canadian movies. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast again, Alexander. Yes, my name is Alexander Cairns. And I'm William Lee. On this episode, we're going to talk about um, the saddest music in the world, which is Guy, Madden, Guy Madden's movie from this, okay, this, this jacket covers the 2004. Maybe his most accessible one, people often say. And then uh, leading out of that, we're also going to talk about his newest movie, The Forbidden Room, which we uh, we saw recently. Um, So thank you for joining us for this Guy Madden double bill. Um, Before we get into that... Oh, actually, one thing that I have been watching, which I was sort of uh, encouraged to do so after watching The Saddest Music in the World, which stars Mark McKinney, of Kids in the Hall fame, I started getting the Kids in the Hall DVDs from the library and uh, making my way through the first season right now. Could be a potential recurring segment on the podcast where we talk about some some funny sketches on Kids in the Hall. Maybe a kind of a journey back in time. Yeah, and I'll share my favorite moments from The Littlest Hobo. What's that? <laughs> you don't know. No. Oh, it was a show on Canadian TV in the eighties. It was a it was a German shepherd who wandered from town to town, helping like solve people's problems, and then he'd wander <laughs> off again. That sounds awesome. Do they have DVDs of that? I wonder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting for them to like make a movie out of it. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Um, I'd say the highlight for me in my viewing of the show thus far would be the um, the introduction of the Cabbage Head character. Uh, I've noticed on YouTube that there are more scenes to come with Cabbage Head, but um, there it's like Mark McKinney and uh, or no, sorry, Bruce McCullough and Kevin McDonald in a restaurant, and they're on a first date. Kevin McDonald's in drag, as the kids in the hall tend to be, and um, Kevin McDonald is is just sort of looking at the menu, saying like, "Oh, you know, maybe I'll get this or that appetizer, but you know, I got to watch my hips, so maybe I'll get a salad." And Bruce McCullough goes, yeah, you would remind me that I have a cabbage for a head. And then he like pulls down the menu and you see he's got a cabbage for a head. And then the scene just progresses as normal as like a sort of awkward, terrible first date. But one of the people has a cabbage for a head. And it was excellent. Um, Do you remember that one? <clears throat> Vaguely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I watched uh, the kids in the hall on and off in my, in my high school days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my friends and I would often, uh, yeah, recount the episodes to each other. So nice. Um, they, you know, they're they are a very particular brand of humor. I remember when Brain Candy is that the movie when that came out. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen it. But. I went and I went and saw that and like just was rolling on the floor laughing. It was I, 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 I hate people like using those kind of um, metaphors. All I mean to say is like I had a really good I had a really good time with it. I, was, I thought it was really funny. Yeah. But I remember seeing like a lot of the mainstream reviews for it were like one, for like a one star review because mainstream critics just thought it was a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. But. I think that <clears throat> tends to happen with comedy in general that it just doesn't really connect. It's it's got to be for the right audience. Yeah, yeah. And and I think a lot of comedy doesn't necessarily reveal itself on a first viewing. You know, something like Anchorman. Mm. That's probably true, yeah. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I, I think there's people who it's tailored for and they get it and they say this is great and I think everyone else is going to be slow to the party mm-hmm. if it has, if it, you know, is legitimately good. I mean, I don't know if people are going to ever come around to 
you know, Adam Sandler's shittier movies. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we talked about Wet Hot American Summer in the past, and that's one that, like, I've gotten more enjoyment the more I've thought about it and watched it yeah. and revisited certain scenes. Yeah, and, and that's a good example. That's also one that, um, when it came out, a lot of critics dismissed it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, so speaking about, I think this is a good tie-in. We were talking about movies that have a, uh, that are for a specific audience. Yeah. And um, was this your first uh, exposure to Guy Madden? Uh, well, I guess if we're talking about saddest music first, then no, I, okay. because <laughs> we're, we did see The Forbidden Room in the theater. The Forbidden Room was your first exposure. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think, I think Guy Madden makes movies that are for a very specific audience, and that might be him. Yeah. <laughs> he is the audience. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I'm really glad that Guy Madden makes movies. No fucking kidding, dude. Yeah, I and I think maybe I don't love his movies, but I love the fact that he makes movies. Yeah, like it's great. It's great. Um, so uh, I'm happy that we're gonna talk about this, and we're probably gonna find out that we don't. Um, maybe we like him for different reasons, or maybe we are just scratching the surface on on what Guy Madden's about. Mm-hmm. But I would uh, I'd recommend other people to check out his movies. Yeah. Um, have you have you seen uh, his other movies? Any other movies besides these two? Uh, no, but I mean, maybe to sort of set the stage for people who aren't familiar with his work, it's all sort of takes place within this world of, of kind of classic cinema, I guess you could say, where he's, he's referencing filmmaking styles and tropes of movies from the thirties or even silent cinema. Yeah. And he's, uh, he actually describes the kind, the kinds of movies that influence him as primitive, um, so we're talking about silent era. Uh, we're talking about like American um, American movies from like the the twenties, thirties. Um, he borrows from uh, German expressionism, um, and yeah, there's there's a lot of. I was trying to I was trying to describe his um, style to uh, to a friend, and um, it's almost like if um, like I don't know if you um, did you study um, did you do film studies in in college or university? No, no. Um, when I when I studied some uh, film history, um, we started with uh, 1894 is where we started. Yeah, and we like went the, the train going toward yeah. the screen or whatever. Yeah, yeah. like Edison's kind of hand crank stuff. Yeah. the Lumiere brothers, and we would. It was pretty much in chronological like uh, this is like the development of film. Yeah. And I wonder if filmmakers, like if film students today, I, I wonder if they get that kind of um, um, grounding in films, or if they, or if they just like like launch into it and say, "Here's, you know, this is how you make a movie. How, this is how you make a movie that resembles a movie that you've seen in the last ten years." Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it's it's almost like if Guide Man had gone to um, to school to study film and he started from uh, the dawn of film, it's like he studied for. Um, half of the semester and decided that's all I need to know. I'm going to make movies because yeah. right? he, he, he just kind of like said, I, the tools that they were using up into the thirties and forties, that's all I need to, to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, although I guess with the forbidden room that was shot digitally. So he, so he is using modern techniques to replicate that style yeah. in the sense that he's using effects to make it look aged mm-hmm. and, and warped and all yeah. that. So, um, yeah, well, let's start with the saddest music in the world. So directed by Guy Madden. Here's something I wanted to, I want to admit to in terms of how I watch his movies. Yeah. Uh, when I sat down to watch saddest music in the world, 
I fell asleep after 20 minutes. And so I came back to it the night later and I watched it for about 40 minutes and fell asleep. And so then I came back to it on subsequent nights, like watching like 20, 40 minutes at a time yeah. until I could finish it. Yeah, I remember we were planning to record the episode and you kept just saying, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I, I it kept yet. delaying because, and I, every time I sat down, I was into it. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to get through this movie. I wasn't bored by it or anything. I just, um, it was just something about watching it at home and being trapped in the Guy Madden dreamscape. My brain was like fighting it or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've had this before with other movies of his that I've, um, that I've tried to watch at home. I do just kind of, um, zone get out. it, get into a trance and zone out. Yeah. But if I see his movies in the theaters, uh, I'm, uh, I'm totally attentive and I can get through it no problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Directed by Guy Madden, obviously, as we've well established. Uh, written, I guess the original screenplay was written by a Japanese writer named Katsuo Ishiguro, if yeah, I'm saying that correctly. He's, and he's also, um, like, he's a pretty prominent novelist as well. His, um, so, okay. yeah, look up his IMDb and you'll see he's got a lot of credits to his name. Yeah, he's, he's written uh, Never Let Me Go, The Remains of the Day, um, among others. But it uh, looks like, from, from what I read about the movie and gathered from the, the director's commentary track on the DVD, they basically completely rewrote it. The, same, the, the simple premise of the movie is consistent from Mr. Ishiguro's original screenplay, but everything else was rewritten by Madden and a gentleman named George Tolles or Tolles. Yes. Who, who I think he's a, I think he's a film professor. In, yeah. And he's a regular, Winnipeg. yeah, he's a regular collaborator with Guy Madden. Okay. So, um, the plot in brief. Sure. Uh, I get, or, and I guess we could establish the actors as well. Yep. Um, Isabella Rossellini, Mark McKinney, uh, Maria de Medeiros, who was the, um, the woman who wants the pot belly in Pulp Fiction. Um, I'm trying to think anyone else that really stands out. Mm, not for like me. There are some other <clears throat> prominent characters in the movie, but it seems like they're more sort of local Winnipeg actors that I wasn't familiar with. The people that he used for um, the contestants in the competition to, to play the saddest music in the world, they were... Um, they're people that he found at a music festival in, in Winnipeg. Yeah. So he just... In like an like an ethnic music festival. He just asked them to bring their costumes and instruments and, yeah. uh, and, and auditioned them. So Isabella Rossellini, Rossellini she's, um, she's the owner of a beer factory in Winnipeg, and she sponsors a contest inviting teams from around the world to come and show that they have, prove that they have the saddest music in the world. And the prize is uh, 20,000 Depression-era dollars. And um, and then there's a family of uh, of men who are all contestants representing different countries. Um, there's, Despite all being from Winnipeg originally. <laughs> yeah, uh, but the the father, I think is it's Theodore Kent. Theodore, yeah, yeah, the Kent clan. Yeah, um, he represents Canada, and he's gonna he's gonna like sing songs from uh, that he learned serving in World War One, I, I think. Yeah, and. Um, Chester is yeah. Mark McKinney's played or Mark McKinney plays Chester Kent, one of Theodore's sons, who's representing America, and he's this very boisterous, yeah, he uh, obnoxious, um, yeah, he promotes himself as like a like a Broadway producer, yeah, and he's yeah, so that's who he is, and uh, and then the other son, whose name is Roderick, and he also goes by Gavrilo the Great, yeah, he is going to represent Serbia. Those are the for whatever characters. fucking reason. 
Yeah. Uh, and then we'll, and then we find out that they've, uh, they've got, um, uh, the characters have backstories that connect with other characters, um, mm-hmm. mainly through the women in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, is that pretty much the story? It's the beer contest and these, and the, these men. Well, it's a music contest. Sorry, yeah. Put on by a beer company. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. And, and these, uh, these three men are competing and, um, amongst other, as you said, ethnic yeah. performers yeah. of various, I guess, what Japanese, some, there's an some African form of nation African, that comes in. Yeah. Then there's Mexican contingent. Yeah. And, yeah. So there, it's, it's an international competition. Yeah. Um, Oh, so Chester um, is currently dating a woman, played by um, Maria de Medeiros, and we find out later that she's actually the wife of uh, Roderick. Right. Um, and then Chester also has a past relationship with Lady Huntsmith, Port Huntley, Port Huntley. Helen Port Huntley is uh, Ros- uh, Rosalini's character. Yeah. And it's Theodore who is actually um, in love with uh, with Lady Port Huntley. And uh, that's so. That's the setup. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it's in it's the best way to talk about this movie is just to try and remember what the fuck happened. Okay, <laughs> because like it's just such a bizarre experience, and there's so many different little plot twists and everything that happens, and it's all so absurd. Um, Did yeah, you like, like it? Did you like it? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I I don't know. I beca- I think because I was so off put by it, I didn't really pick up on the comedy. The comedic elements of it while I was watching it, but then watching the commentary track and then thinking about it afterward, just kind of realized how absurd a lot of it is. But um, I'm thinking specifically of the scene where um, they get in the car accident and Theodore starts sawing sawing um, Isabella Helen's, Hel- yeah. Helen's legs off, and he's so drunk that he saws the wrong leg off, such that she loses both of, both of her legs in this accident. Yeah. <laughs> and just the way that she, that it's revealed to the audience that she is legless is fucking hilarious, because she's behind this desk, and it looks like it's a normal desk, but I guess it must be so low to the ground. But the way it's shot, it's at her level rather than from Mark McKinney's level looking down on her. And so... Um, when she comes around the side of this desk, she's on this bizarre rolling contraption that's not a wheelchair. It's like a, it's like a rolling magic carpet right. almost, I would call it. Yeah. Well, Chester, Chester comments, hey, did you get a new dolly? Yeah. <laughs> and so she, you just, you just discover that this character's legs are like, what the fuck? Like, why yeah. does she not have legs? Right. And then you discover later on that it's yeah. because Chester's father sawed both of them off. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that the, the logic of the movie works too is like she'll she starts to retell the story and then and then Fyodor the father he just shows up in the background and says well since you're talking about me I'm going to show up and, and and now talk to you about being in the contest yeah and yeah and then they forget about telling that story and then like yeah it just it, it seems like it's constantly grabbing at these loose ends at like whenever it whenever it feels required mm-hmm. that, that that there's no there's no importance placed on when certain things need to happen in the plot and in what sequence and anything like that. Um, the other, the other sort of feeling I get of, of watching this movie and of watching the forbidden room to a degree, but more so this one, just because it's, it is set in depression era Winnipeg. It, it's presenting history, but it's not 
obeying any sort of historical accuracy. It feels it feels like it's Guy Madden's version of history mm-hmm. and his understanding of how the world works rather than how the world actually works. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of related to that is the way the characters speak feels more like how if like it to me it felt like if he was watching like a silent movie and just like overdubbing it with his own dialogue like just rather than rather than what these two people are saying in in an actual scene it comes across as like well let's just you know do some lip readings and and try and figure out like what what some funny version of of this scene might be because like there at one point uh chester and um Narcissa, who's Maria de Maros's character, they're they're sitting on a on a trolley car, and he asks her where she's from, or somehow it comes up like, like he says like are are you from Canada or Winnipeg or something? I can't remember exactly, and she says no, I'm a nymphomaniac. Yeah, and it's just such a bizarre response to that question that it just immediately felt like to me it, he was he was kind of imagining okay if this was a silent film like what would these two characters be saying to each other and and just coming up with some absurd comment <laughs> it does have that feel sometimes where it, it seems like it's a weird dialogue that doesn't kind of connect with anything but then um but, but I, I think it's very like well thought out about that line she says um narcissa says yeah i'm not an american i'm an i'm a nymphomaniac yeah that's like, what it was yeah um i read i read a, an essay um that was talking about um how the movie represents canada and what they point out um, is that in the in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, the year that nymphomaniac enters the lexicon is the year that Canada is founded. Okay, so <laughs> it's just one of those details where you think like, is that is that so deliberate that she is actually saying I'm a Canadian, or is it just like a happy coincidence that it happened? Right. right. Often um, when I talking with mov- talking about movies with friends. I don't know if we're talking about it as like a piece of art or is it just like a, a piece of, um, you know, just like showbiz kind of fluff, right? Yeah. And, and when you have, when people write essays about movies and stuff, like, is it warranted? Like, can you actually, is there really that much depth in a movie? And, um, it, it seems like in Guy Madden's work that there is that depth. And I just wonder how deliberate it is, but there is just a lot to, uh, a lot to take apart in, in terms of meaning. Um, I think it, it comes to the fact that he's he collaborates with like film academics. Mm-hmm. Um, he also lectures on film. According to his Wikipedia page, he was he initially um, he originally did a degree in economics and then went into filmmaking afterwards. Mm-hmm. He's also done uh, installations in museums, so he is objectively an artist, mm-hmm. right? So filmmakers aren't. Necess- aren't, aren't, they, they have to prove themselves to be artists, is what you're saying. Don't you feel that they should? Or, like, if you just take any movie that's been, uh, that, uh, any mainstream movie, I don't think you could call it a work of art. Or would you? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't know that that's necessarily my choice to make, I guess. That's, I'll leave that to, you know, the, the critics that. But do you think it's the intention? Really think about that? But do you think I, it's the intention of the filmmakers? Like, so whoever's making the next, um, the next paranormal activity movie sequel, right? Yeah. I mean, are they, is there intention to make something that is artistic? Something that could be, um, talked about in essays and, and on podcasts and in textbooks? I, I don't think it's necessarily, 
a given that that it wouldn't be discussed. So mm-hmm. I don't know where in the creative process something gets necessarily labeled as important or as a piece of art or or whatever. But I I would think that that's more for others to determine after the fact. So it, I guess I guess I'm, I guess I would more just be of the mind that you can't assume that something isn't important and interesting and and artistic and and worthy of those types of discussions until you actually consume it and Mm -hmm. i think it would whether something has that sort of cultural value i guess comes out of discussions on Mm -hmm. it right if if we um if we give it that importance if we give it that value then it has that value Mm -hmm. yeah Um, i don't I, i don't think it would be fair to presume that we have to talk about every guy madden movie as an important piece of art no, I, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah, but I think, I guess all I'm saying is, his movies seem to be infused with so much detail and so much um, like uh, meaning. Yeah, that I, I think I think what he is creating is art. Yeah, totally. And I, um, I I really like the feeling that I get watching his movies. That it kind of it feels like everything, like all of history, is kind of happening at once. Like he's he's bringing in modern ideas. He's bringing in past ideas. He's setting it in whatever, 1930 or, or the late 20s or whenever it is. Or no, thir- Depression was in the 30s. Yeah, because it's the Roaring 20s. So the 20s were good and then the 30s were bad. Yeah. So sometime after 1930, he's setting this movie. I don't know if it's specific. But um, he's making references to earlier points in history with, with Gavrilo the Great being sort of representing Serbia. So that, that brings in the First World War. And I mean, I'm going off way into the deep end of, of actually trying to make any intelligent commentary on this. But um, I just I just like the idea that all of history is happening at once. And mm. that, that's just the impression I get when I, when I watch the saddest music in the world. Mm. Um, you, you, you talked about how you, uh, you enjoyed the the writing, the dialogue, yeah, um, and like that, and the acting—it's kind of. Um, would you could we characterize it as somewhat melodramatic? Um, yeah, yeah. Did that? Did that feel okay in this work for you? Sure. Uh, some background I read about Guy Madden: when he was young, his older brother committed suicide on his girlfriend's grave. Did you read that? No. Did you? Um, and then his and then his father died when he was uh, very young as well. So you know, I don't want to I don't want to make too strong a point that that his um, his formative years are, are are the reason for his movies, but I, I think he also acknowledges that he tries to bring a lot of stylized autobiography into his movies. Mm-hmm. But I think that detail about his um, about his brother's death, I think um, it's it's on the surface it sounds like the description of a melodramatic scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it seems like he he lives in a world himself where like grand gestures of emotion like that mm-hmm. really do exist. So right. I don't think it um I don't think it's so hard for him to incorporate that into his movies in a sincere manner. Right. I, I think he feels people express themselves in giant gestures. The the other thing that I was reading about him is that he tends to lie a lot in mm. interviews and so I, I I'm sure there's some validity to the to the these family members of his dying, but um, I get the understanding that a lot of a lot of the um, autobiography that he incorporates into his into his work and into his interaction with with the public is fabricated in a lot of cases. 
I, do, I don't know the extent of that, and uh, I'll be interested to discover more about that, I guess. But mm-hmm. um, The relationship between the, the Kent men, it seems ripe for... Um, for film students to take it apart and read it in a in a Freudian sense. Uh, so could you could you elaborate on that? Well, <clears throat> um, sort of like the how males are trying to um, prove themselves against each other through their winning of women. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, um, Chester, the son, who. Well, okay. If you take if you take if you take Fyodor and his love for Helen um, as like the father and mother. Chester comes and he has sex with the mother and kills the father. Right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's um, that's like uh, yeah, that's Oedipal. Right? Yeah, and then that gets mirrored again when uh, when Chester then steals um, Roderick's wife, um, though he doesn't know he's he's stolen her. Right. Yeah. Then back to Helen, like the chopping off her off her legs is an act of castration. Right. Right. Uh, but these are just like those you know those things that you can that you would have pointed out in an academic environment saying like these things these things these ideas are drawn from certain theories or um yeah i guess for me watching it like you say he sort of it it seems like he exists in this academic world and you know he writes he co-writes with with this film professor etc but i don't get the sense that he's overly concerned with the intellectual ideas behind what he's communicating like it seemed it just seems like there's so many ideas happening all at once it kind of reminded me of um what i've read of thomas pynchon and just the willingness to explore every idea and like i said sort of collapsing history on itself and and presenting this skewed understanding of of events that ultimately is i guess more personal or more um subjective but i don't i don't really get the sense that he's sitting there thinking about you know freudian concepts as he's writing his screenplay i feel like he's he's more just having fun really Mm -hmm. and then you know there might be analysis that can be done after the fact to really piece that apart yeah well if if there is a deliberateness to have that layer of meaning in in the story i don't think it um, like it doesn't make it any less fun. It doesn't feel no. like you're reading a textbook to to have all this play out in front of you. Mm-hmm. It does feel like you know a story that um, that you've seen before. And uh, if in fact there is like an academic intention behind it, I, I don't think it makes it any less enjoyable. Mm-hmm. But I but you know just thinking on on the on the creative process for movies where you know every detail is plotted out and and and. And there's all these people involved. Um, it seems like it would be hard to slip details in accidentally, mm-hmm. right? So I really admire the fact that there is there is so many layers of meaning in his in, in this movie. Yeah, um, and I th- I think that ultimately is just comes down to the fact of him being a quality writer and and understanding you know story structure and and just being able to put that together in in what seems like such a haphazard and mm-hmm. um free flowing way um but just as an example of of kind of what I what I'm thinking about in terms of like the intel- the, the potential intellectualism of his process like when I uh, I listen to the director's commentary on this DVD and it's him and Mark McKinney and they're basically just talking about how cold Winnipeg is like mm-hmm. the whole time <laughs> that's the that's the majority of the conversation is 
oh, I remember in this scene, like Maria was really cold. And so we had to, we had to put a bunch of heaters on her, but like we wanted it to feel really cold. And they're, they're just talking about how it was a really cold winter in Winnipeg for the majority of the movie. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's no attempt at like, here's, here's the meaning behind this or that or anything. It's just, let's, let's just recall some fun memories from this movie. And then let's talk about how cold Winnipeg is. I think that's typically what you hear when a filmmaker talks about a movie is they just, they talk about those, they talk about the the real details of making it Mm -hmm. rather than, rather than like the thoughtful intent behind something. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it, I think it's hard to, it's hard to pull the curtain back on intention because there's always, there there always seems to be that reluctance to, to, to like tip their hand and, and -hmm. and show what they want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I've always wondered about, Quentin Tarantino, who is like, he seems like super intelligent filmmaker, but the way he gives interviews is you would think, you know, he's just some, he's just some dude who, who he just does it on a lark. It's fucking cool, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's how he presents himself, except his movies are just like, they're so good yeah. that it doesn't happen by accident. No. Yeah. <clears throat> David Lynch is the same way where he's, he's almost, he almost gets angry when people try and pick apart certain details of his of his process in mm-hmm. an interview he just he just dismisses it completely he just you know i had these ideas and you know i went away and created some more ideas and mm-hmm. after that i put the ideas together and created some images in my mind <laughs> it's like okay thanks david lynch <laughs> much appreciated yeah. the, he's got that uh, on the eraser head criteria disc there's this documentary in quotes called the racer head stories where he's just on the phone with his production manager from the movie talking about the process and he goes on this like five minute tangent about how he had to get a dead cat from a veterinarian so that they could put it in the in one of the scenes Mm. and yeah you know it was like taking a steel cat out of a a glass steel cat out of a steel jar you know uh i have no fucking idea (laughs) I'm almost ready to lead into the um, into Forbidden Room. Yes, yeah, yeah. is, is there any details about um, Saddest Music you want to you want to key in on? No, I think I think really the fact that we can't mm-hmm. break apart like here's how this scene played out and that scene played out and whatever. I just I, it's more of uh, a sensual experience watching the movie, and mm-hmm. and I I feel like it would be discrediting it to some degree to try and go too much further into it yeah well here's the thing about the about the forbidden room which i i enjoyed watching it Mm -hmm. i can i can remember very little of it yeah i have no idea (laughs) the only the the, i i started following the forbidden room twitter account Uh and that has allowed me to piece together some elements of the movie that i had forgotten like the pancakes i don't remember the pancakes (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's uh, let's try to throw some. Let's try to piece together the forbidden room a little bit. Um, it opens with like a fake instructional video. Instructional. Um, I'd it, say it's more of a public service announcement on the on the importance of taking baths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it starts with that, and then I forget how we get to the submarine story. Yeah, but there's. Um, I think it just might travel into the drain of the bathtub. <laughs> but there's a bunch of submariners who are afraid that something is going to explode, <laughs> and they have to get to the captain's room, which and is they're, which, they're running out of air. Yeah, um, so that's happening, and then a lumberjack shows up. 
And he, he shows up in the submarine. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just starts telling them stories. Yeah. And then people within the story start telling stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. But yeah, so, so the pancake thing is, uh, when they're in the submarine, they're like, oh, we have to make some flapjacks. It keeps the air bubbles inside. And so they're like breathing the air out of the pancakes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, who fucking knows what was going on in that movie, man? <laughs> There's even uh, there's even somebody's eyebrows that tell a story at one point. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember that? No. <laughs> like I kind of do, but not really. Uh, yeah, but it is. And there's and and Udo Kier, like he's he's like a father and he disappears for a while and does he kill the mother or something? Is that? Uh, I think that's the eyebrow story. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then i remember i remember laughing really hard at the one where 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 the guy's like trying to cover up that he that he killed someone did he is that is that how it plays out i don't even know man or or no he's trying to cover up that he's cheating on his wife and then like a musical group pops out of the side of the wall i think and like i don't even really know wow this is like trying to like it's it's a dream it feels like a dream in the movie and it's literally like trying to recount a dream in discussing it because mm-hmm. I have no idea. I think that sums up kind of the experience of watching Guy Madden movies is mm-hmm. it's like being in his dream, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's dream logic and um, it looks like a dream. It, it's just pretty unique. I mm-hmm. think oh, yeah, his movies are just one of a kind or. Yeah. I, I, but I, I definitely, the, the color in the Forbidden Room, I really enjoy it. Is it like, um, well, it seemed like oversaturated in some places. Yeah, like but, and, but the, and the color palette itself was quite limited. Like it looked like they were, mm-hmm. I, I don't know the technical elements of it, but they're just kind of like layering different colors on top of each other. And that's what gives the color in the image. Like it's, it's like done in black and white and then, and then the colors added. Oh, it's, it's like, do you think, did you feel like it was trying for like a hand tinted type of style? I don't know. Yeah. I do remember the cover, the colors being very vibrant. Yeah, and yeah, that that was certainly part of the texture of that of that movie. And 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 there would be all kinds of intertitles that would pop up, and then they would show up again in like a different typeface. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have much to say. On this. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I really look forward to watching it again, though. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just uh, w- like when you discover someone like this that just creates such unique artwork i i just i get really excited and so i'm really looking forward to watching this again and watching all of his other movies i also watched the short film that he created called bring me the head of tim horton Mm -hmm. which um hasn't been given a real release it's um it's a quote-unquote behind the scenes documentary of the making of hyena road which is uh, Canadian filmmaker Paul Gross's newest production. Uh, we both haven't seen Hyena Road. No. We may or may not choose to watch it and discuss it in the future. Yeah. But um, so was he, was Guy Man hired to make the documentary? Yeah. Or? So he was hired to make this behind the scenes documentary. He, I think he actually approached Paul Gross mm-hmm. to say, hey, what do you think about me joining you in, I think it's Jordan that they filmed it in, mm-hmm. um, and making this behind the scenes documentary with you. And he subsequently created this, again, very kaleidoscopic, nonsensical 
travel travelogue or whatever you want to call it this but it's basically a it's it's I'd call it more of a a film essay about um his struggles as an artist and his his resentment toward the larger filmmaking machine that that Paul Gross is a part of and in creating this multi-million dollar production funded by the Canadian government and and, and other sources that is in his view, artless and soulless, etc. And so the documentary was obviously rejected by the production. They did not choose to include it in any of their materials, and um, it hasn't been it hasn't been released anywhere. I think it was shown on a television screen outside of another screening at the Toronto International Film Festival. So people were able to watch it, but in a Sort of truncated format. It wasn't like an official screen. No, it wasn't presented anywhere. It was, it was sort of under, kept under the carpet. Mm -hmm. So it's up online. Um, but difficult to track down. Um, it it was a lot of fun to watch though. And, um, he caught, he ends up creating his own little war movie inside of this thing because he, he kind of, he, he followed them around with his camera while they were shooting other stuff and, and got some footage that he could piece together and put together these kind of battle scenes. But otherwise it's just, him like like at one point he was an extra in the movie he was like one of the dead people in the background and so he's kind of commenting on how you know he's this he's considered this revered artistic director but you know he's he's relegated to the backgrounds of this being a larger body, production being a, an inert body yeah wow um oh actually and in in conjunction with the forbidden room apparently they um they made the film as a way of exploring this other sort of um, interactive art piece that they want to do online. And mm-hmm. so I, my understanding is that sometime in 2016, they're going to be launching this website. Um, and actually, we should point out that The Forbidden Room was was co-directed by a gentleman named Evan Johnson. Yes. And um, yeah, so, so, they're, so they're doing this, this online art installation in the coming yeah. months, I think. I suspect um, because Evan Johnson is... Like his current collaborator and, um, uh, probably like a lot of the new, like digital tools. Maybe he has a grasp on that, which yeah. is why he's, uh, yeah, he's got co-writing credit and, uh, co-directing credit and involved with this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think we also recommend the Forbidden Room, even though we can't really put into words what it's about. Correct. Yeah. But then I think that applies to most of Guy Madden's movies. They just have to be experienced. You can't just, it's hard to sum them up. It's hard to describe it in a way that, like that sells it to just a general audience, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like it would take several viewings of any of them, or at least of the two that I've seen, to really condense. Like, here's the themes. Here's what it's about. Um, here's what it's trying to explore. Go watch it, kind of thing. So let's go back to the saddest music in the world and uh, and look at it through the lens of our recurring segment, "What Makes It Canadian." Yeah, uh, where we talk about the characteristics and tropes that Canadian films rely on. There is hockey is featured. They mm-hmm. play hockey in the movie. Beer. There is um there is national self-deprecation. Um do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. yeah. Which I think um I don't know if we're going to see that often in movies by Canada, but I think it is a Canadian characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um also it was it I think it's the first one that that overtly presents an idea of American culture 
as well in terms of uh, Chester's character and his sort of rambunctious go get him attitude um, and how the other characters in the movie are just kind of resentful of that like they just don't care for his for his energy and uh, but I think does he end up winning the competition though no um, Roderick wins the competition okay. I think well I don't know if he wins it but he 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 emerges sort of victorious in the movie right right yeah like he's reunited. Oh, sorry, spoilers ahead. If we're gonna make this one, yeah, he's reunited um, with his wife, and because uh, he's one of the finalists at the end, mm-hmm. and then, but then, but then Chester dies. So, so I, I think I think that's how it's. I think that's how the contest is resolved. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that could be that could be something that we'll see explored in in future. I'm thinking uh, maybe maps of the stars. In terms of uh, trying to understanding American culture from an outsider's perspective, so, so you're saying you, you're saying like Canadian movies will um, will represent American culture in a in a negative light or in not a necessarily light? not necessarily negative, but yeah, just just um, or, or or at least trying to define Americanness and Canadianness in contrast to each other. That's true. I think um, that we'll probably see that. Yeah. And again, that's a very that's a part of the Canadian personality is we have to describe ourselves in in contrast to yeah. the American personality. Yeah. Any other? Uh... Oh, it's really cold. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's Canadian. Yeah. So on our on our flexible and made up arbitrary. Rating system. Uh, how many Leafs would you award this movie? Uh, we'll do twenty-three. Okay. Prime number. Sure. We're all gonna the so the scale increases every time. Yeah. All right. It's gonna get really intense and overwhelming after okay. a certain point. <laughs> Actually, it, like it'll be fine once we get closer to a hundred because then it'll be like we're doing out of ten. But uh-huh. then once we go past that, it'll be kind of hard to figure out again. Uh, well, we'll just have to remember to pack a calculator when we record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's go with, um, I don't know, 20 out of 23 leaves. That's high marks. Yeah. yeah. Sure, man. Okay. Um, I think that's, I think that's pretty close to what I would give it. So yeah. Also 20 leaves. Yeah. Cool. All right. And the forbidden room gets no leaves. We don't know. I can't I I can't remember how many leaps I would give it. Yeah. But I recommend well, the, it. The, 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 our eyebrows might have something to say about it. <laughs> yeah. Um we might have to watch more Guy Madden later uh for this podcast. Oh totally. Yeah. But uh, and if we don't, I, I enjoy watching his movies. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for chatting about the saddest music in the world. Yeah, so our website is filmedincanada.net. Yeah, we'll have um other blog posts and you can you can share your you can post your own comments and find our other podcasts there. Um, I'm on Twitter at Married to a Fly and also on Letterboxd. All right. And uh, same, same moniker, Married to a Fly. And you can email comments directly to us at uh, filmedincanada at gmail.com. And also leave a rating and review on iTunes. That'll help us get more uh, exposure on the internets. Yes, please. Or just tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm William Lee. And I'm Alexander Kearns. I don't like the way I said my name. That was We don't weird. need to say our names at the end, dude. No? There okay. you know. All right. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
See you later. 